On today's show, we are talking to Cody Sanchez. She's the founder of Contrarian Thinking, an amazing creator, YouTuber, marketer, and entrepreneur. We're going to talk to her all about common business mistakes, how to make boring businesses sexy, all the hacks of storytelling that she uses to grow her businesses and grow her content empire. I'm your co-host, Kip Bodner, CMO at HubSpot, and this is Marketing Against the Grain. Before we get to today's show, let me tell you about HubSpot. Finding a service solution that helps you keep your customers happy can feel impossible. Like try to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at the networking event. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. It brings together service and success together on one platform with AI-powered help desk and chatbots to handle your frontline support tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit hubspot.com service to learn more. Right. We're here on Marketing Against the Grain with Cody Sanchez. Cody, I am so happy to have you on the show because, one, I'm a huge fan. I follow you on YouTube. I follow you on Twitter. Love your content. Love what you've built. You have built an incredible media presence online. First of all, congratulations. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, We're super excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I was an original listener to Marketing Against the Grain, Kip. I listened to it back in the day. Sam told me about it. The early episodes when we were No, I was taking notes. I was scribbling down. That is very nice of you. Very nice of our friend Sam Parr to give it a plug. But what I want to talk to you about today, one of the things that I admire so much about you is your ability to really like understand businesses and Talk about business problems in a really simple, clear, framework-driven way. And one of the, the things I think about you is like, I think about you as a student of business, a student of marketing. And I'd love to just kind of get some of your takes on like, you've seen all these businesses, you're an investor, you're an entrepreneur. Like, what do you think are kind of the hidden traits of really great businesses? What are things that people don't talk about enough that great businesses, great growth stories all have in common? First, in my mind, a great business is one that it doesn't matter if there's a recession. It doesn't matter if the market's up or down. It doesn't matter what people are making or what the earnings calls say. And in my mind, when your toilet breaks, you're going to call that plumber, regardless (laughs) of of if there's a recession or not. You're going to call them, right? And so when I think about a great business, I think about a great business as one that lasts for a really long time. I'm super uninterested in speculative short-term bets. I think that usually leads to ruin. And I'm also not smart enough to find the next new trend and to do what all of you know your guys' friends have done in San Francisco and find the next hot new social media app. Just not my wheelhouse. But I think I can take a century old industry like plumbing and maybe sex it up a little bit and maybe make the service a little bit better. And so the great businesses in my mind are those. And I also think Kip, and I'd be curious your take, but I think so often in today's society, we're chasing the new, you know, we're humans with a evolutionary curiosity that needs to be constantly fulfilled for the new. And that's okay, but I think it leads to a detriment of the businesses that we actually need. And so I prefer need over new. I love the just oversimplification of need over new. I'm completely with you on 
the boring businesses and the necessity of that. The challenge is that we've made a lot of those businesses so unsexy that it's hard to find the people to actually go and work in those businesses now. We've devalued trades. We've kind of glamorized knowledge work and not the kind of core trade day-to-day work that we all need to like actually survive as a society. So I, I think the big gap there is just how do we get the supply demand back in those types of businesses from a workforce perspective? I mean, it's also interesting because the numbers are so skewed from what the narrative is. Yes. The narrative is if you go into marketing, you're going to make hundreds of thousands of dollars. You'll be the next Gary Vaynerchuk. You'll be the next Kip, right? And the reality is, is that the average pay in marketing is somewhere around $36,000, $37,000 a year. Now, averages can be misleading. My very first marketing job, I made $22,000 a year. Exactly. So the average pay is actually not that high. And then if you go to the average pay for a plumber or the average pay for a tradesman, it's actually (laughs) $76,000 a year. And very little likelihood of you getting laid off unless it's for non-performance. And so I think, one, you go to the numbers because the numbers are hard to lie with. And then two, I think it's really fun. Like I remember one of my favorite marketing things we did with one of our small businesses is we invested in a pool cleaning company. And if you get your pool cleaned, you know, they usually leave a little card on your patio and the card just says, you know, it was cleaned at this date. Here's the pH or whatever the card says. Thanks. It's sort of usually pretty ugly. It's using sort of whatever that's called, like corporate images, you just, you're annoyed. I get an, every time I see it, I'm like, ah, I got to go out there and I got to throw it away because it, it doesn't look nice. So I was like, hmm, that's interesting. So we have a moment with our customer every single week when we clean their pool. And that moment leads to annoyance at worst. And like, okay, they just did the thing they promised that they were going to do anyway at best. And so instead we turned the card into a series of funny little postcards. And like one of them was like a really hot pool boy. It was like a lounging pool boy. And on it, it basically said like, yeah, I was here. And then like, you know, and then gave the traditional (laughs) stats. And so, and then another one was like a kid doing something funny. I can't remember. And so in the trades, I think it's so easy to have amazing marketing moments because the bar is so very low as opposed to, I'd have a hard time competing with the hottest new sexy startups. Yeah, you're kind of making a point of like, there's a lot of value in just predictability and compounding that predictability of like, hey, you kind of know what the economics of these businesses are like. And you actually can differentiate on experience because so many of them, the bar for experience is not even average, it's below average. And if you're willing to just be above average, not even amazing, you will completely set yourself out apart from everybody. And then it's way easier to hire. So if you're part of a company where you're like, you know, the experience my pool man typically has with me is like, hey, man, what's up? How's it going? Whatever, you know, and (laughs) or that's best case. Worst case is like, dude, why weren't you here last week? The pool is green. Like it's only negative interactions or sort of benign interactions, (laughs) right? And so that job kind of sucks. But if instead of that, you made it a little bit easier for your people too, where it's like, that card was hysterical, dude. That's so funny. And then you tell them, like, I think the company at the time told them to say a line back something like, because, you know, the guy was very good looking in there. They kind of gave him some funny lines. Like you could be like, you know, yeah, that picture was from about 10 years ago. And like, so the interaction, you know, and it was obviously wasn't them, <laughs> yeah. right? And so I think that makes it easier to hire. It makes it easier to retain customers. And the other thing is most people think in small business land that you compete on pricing. And you do, I get that. And the margins in small business are small and most small businesses are run by like one person. It's tough. I get it. But on the flip side of that, 
I don't actually know what a competitive price for my pool cleaning is. I don't know that. I can't really go on Amazon and easily see it like I could see widget X versus widget Y. So actually, I should just be premium pricing for most of these services with a little bit of marketing magic. And that seems like it's totally doable, but not often done. Uh, I I completely agree with that. I think those are some really amazing lessons in differentiation and the pricing power that comes with a premium brand and actual marketing. One of the other things, the other aspects of marketing that you and I have in common, you may not know this, I think we both have a journalism background. I went to school for journalism. You were in journalism. We are passionate about storytelling. We both ended up in business and marketing and media. And what I'd love to talk a little bit about is, first of all, like, What's your take on the media landscape these days? Like, I see you on Twitter. I see you on YouTube. I see traditional media laying off all of its staff. Like, what's your take on the world of media today? I think most business models in media are awful. An advertising-based business model is a <laughs> an awful business. That's Preach. why you guys could buy Sam's company, The Hustle, for way more than he could have gotten from any other media company even though I think you guys got a hell of a deal from what I've seen publicly, won't disclose any numbers. It's like a great Uh, company. I I think it was a fair deal for everybody, Cody. Come on. I think we were also a little early to the game too. So yeah, that's probably true. You were very- We got a little first mover advantage. No, that's, this was a good deal, Kip. I think you guys killed it on that. And obviously mergers are hard and there's, you know, market's tough right now in general. But I think, you know, Sam's business model, and he would be the first one to say it, but advertising business models are really tough. Huge volatility. You're always begging for dollars for somebody else. And inherently, if you just think about it, so if I sell something for $100 and I want to go market it on somebody's newsletter or whatever, Mm -hmm. I only want to pay what? Like... 5% 5% of that, 10% of that. I don't know how I would determine how much I'd want to pay. It depends what your margins are. But yeah, you're, you're, you're talking somewhere in the 3 to 10%, depending on your margins. Exactly. And so inherently, they are, if we just talk about gross numbers, making $100, the product that's advertising on my newsletter, and I am making 3 to 10% of that at the high end. Why wouldn't I just instead own a product, sell the product, and own my own media? Yes, this is my whole point. Yeah, exactly. And so I think the media, by and large, advertising doesn't make sense to me. That's why I don't do very much of it. I'm like, you guys make all the cash. We get you the users. Plus, you get the LTV on every single user I bring you. And you literally can't, with your current marketing models, X company, you can't model out high enough for me for what I need you to pay me for the value we drive because it's assuming a lot of long-term payments to your customers. And so I think media right now, The smart ones are going, no more ads and sponsorships. The problem with that is it's hard to build products that people want to buy. Very hard. And so I think there will always be that model because of the flip side. So in my land, we got lucky because we sell products that people want to buy of a varying degree. We sell B2B SaaS for people who buy, build, and sell businesses. And then we sell education and infotainment. And so those two things are high margin and high demand from our users and mean that I don't take a lot of sponsorship deals. And so that's what I think about media largely. And and then the last thing I'll say, and you would know way more about this, but I like HubSpot owning the hustle because now I know that the hustle's only bias is HubSpot, whatever that is. When HubSpot doesn't own the hustle, it could be like we're seeing in stuff all over the media. It could be Pfizer. It could be 
you know, the NRA, it could be, you pick your, your side of the lane. They are indebted to people to have a different perspective. So that was my biggest issue with the media. I was like, you guys are inherently unable to be unbiased because of how you make money. Your point is the bias is like coming from all sides because you're just looking for any dollar you can get because it's an inefficient model, which is a hundred percent correct. The follow-up I'd have to that is, you know, and it's something I would want to know. And I think everybody watching would want to know is, you are the spokesperson. Like you were, you're spending a lot of time on camera, writing, creating. Like, how do you think about the trade-off of that time? If, if if you had somebody out there who was like, how should I be thinking about, you know, storytelling, being a content creator versus actually like working in my business, being in the spreadsheets, doing the actual work? Like, how do you think about that? How do you think about how you actually spend your time day to day? Well, I did a really interesting exercise that actually one of our mutual friends, Jordan, had me go through. Oh, yeah. Shout out, and, Jordan. Yeah, he's awesome. And he basically said, I, I wanted to add some more stuff to my day to day, but I didn't have time. And he was like, you need to basically take a two to four week period. And every single task you do during the day, you need to bucket it into things like exercise, dinner with your husband, you know, writing for the newsletter, writing for the podcast, writing for YouTube, like bucket it out pretty generally. And then see which of those things, one, you are willing to give up to add something new to it, or two, you are uniquely skilled in order to do it. Mm, And anything that. that either you want to give up and anything that you are not uniquely skilled at, you should be figuring out how to delegate that to somebody else. And so in my land, turns out I'm pretty good at content. I like doing content. So I do a lot of it. I am not so good at HR. Like I don't love the onboarding process. I don't love finding a funnel for a bunch of new hires. So I outsource that component Mm -hmm. of it in as much as humanly possible. And so I think the beautiful part about being a CEO of a business is if you do it right, you try to lean into the things you're unfairly advantaged at and you try to build a dream so big it overtakes others' dreams so that they will do the thing you are not skilled at. And so that's why. So I don't think inherently you should do it my way. I think if you're a really great operator and you're really good at the back end, then you should find somebody who does well with a microphone. Well, hold on. Now, do you think that works? This is my actual follow-up question. Do you think you can run a business and truly just have somebody who's a spokesperson that builds a big audience? Because like, why wouldn't they leave and just go, you know, sell whatever other product they could come up or create versus, you know, you just being a pure operator, not having that direct connection with the community and the audience? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that like any partnership, partnerships are incredibly difficult. (laughs) And so you would really have to find partner, partner fit. And in my situation, I have a guy, Chris, who is sort of my right hand and he like, he couldn't want to be in front of the camera less and he couldn't want to come up with (laughs) crazy ideas less. His entire job and what he likes to do is we call him the vibe killer and he loves it. He's like, nope, just like do this. Nope. We didn't say we were doing this. We're not doing that other shiny object. We're just right here. Nope. Cody. Nope. And so in all my career, I've always (laughs) surrounded myself. I had another one called April. She was amazing. She went on to be the CEO of my last company. And so In this instance, I think it works for us, but you're right. Where I see it go wrong, Kip, and you have way more experience than this. I was actually talking to my agents at Night Media that I work with for YouTube stuff, Mm -hmm. and they were pitching me a bunch of different ideas and stuff they were going to do with other creators. And I was like, here's your problem. Most creators suck to work with. They want to talk about whatever they want to talk about. They don't actually close product, and they don't have high 
conversion with their audience. Their audience doesn't want to buy and they're not willing to do the pushing, pushing, pushing of product that you have to do if you actually want people to sell over time. And so I think that's your, your, your red flag. So if you're a great operator, finding creators who inherently want to build a business, not build fame is really tough and important. I love that. I think that's really good advice. We'll be right back. But before, let me tell you about another podcast I love. Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Ever noticed how the smallest changes can have the biggest impact? On Nudge, you learn simple evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. Every bite-sized 20-minute show comes packed with practical advice. Nudge is fast-paced, but it's still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. If you want an MBA's worth of insight in one podcast, this is the right show for you. Entrepreneurs will love this show because it's filled with repeatable proven studies, not hearsay and one-off success stories. You're going to love the show because I was interviewed by Phil. You can go check out my episode. And I recently listened to an awesome episode. It's called Six Scientifically Proven Persuasion Techniques. It's a must listen for anyone in marketing. Listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. The kind of last part on this storytelling arc is uh, the question I get from people all the time that I'm, I'm very interested in your answer is like, you know, I'm a really boring XYZ business, insurance company, engineering company, what have you. I can't, you know, build an audience online. I'm too boring. What's your, what's your advice to those people who think they have a boring business and don't think they have a story to tell? Do you guys want to see some other famous people on here really quick? Please. Come in here. It's okay. This is actually funny. This is <laughs> Layla and Alex Hormozzi. Hey, guys. Spotify's got everybody in the house today. I know. So those two talk about marketing geniuses. Oh, my gosh. They have scaled, man. Yeah. Layla and Alex. You know, and you know what? They're a great example of what we just talked about, which is... He, and I think they would agree with this, but he is, he's that like force, right? Oh, he the totally big is. dreams, the sales, whatever. And then she is, she's an incredible operator. And so I always tell Alex that if Layla ever doesn't want to be married to him, I'll marry her because she's like the best <laughs> operator ever. Small problem that I'm not into that That's type amazing. and I'm happily married, but you know, all those things aside. But I mean, there's, it's, it's harder to find a great operator than you're willing to sacrifice on everything. No, I get you. That's hilarious. My husband's sitting right here. I'm not sure if he's into the whole thruple thing. <laughs> he might feel like, what is wrong with you? Out. I'm just saying. I mean, <laughs> Do you know what blew my mind? Did you know that Warren Buffett has been in a throuple for like decades? This is important what? for the marketing no, podcast. No way. You know, yes. Literally, they send Christmas cards with the three of them. Yeah, happily throupling for like a long time. We should check the exact math on decades and are they still together, but like very well known yeah. publicly. Also, who's his publicist? Nobody talks about this. I was going to say, it turns out like he can lock things down. Like literally nobody knows about this. How, yeah. how did you even find out about this? I don't know. How did I think I read an article somewhere and I had my mind blown. And then I called one of my other friends who's a big investor and was like, did you know? And he's like, oh yeah, everybody knows. I'm like, what? You're you like, know, wait, what? I would get canceled in 30 seconds. But this guy, he's got to figure it out. 
I think it's the mini tractor. Let's, you know, marketing of Warren Buffett. Talk about building a persona. I think that guy oh my probably gosh. takes off the mask at night and it's just a great white shark underneath. Oh, you know it is. he uses the ukulele, the tractor, the Coca-Cola and cheeseburgers. I'm like, I'm not buying it. I mean, I think he's a genius. Driving the old still. car around, you know, like, oh, I just drive my old car around. I don't need anything fancy. You know, he's got a garage of like the hundred rarest cars on the planet. Yeah, he has to, right? Has I think to. he must. Yeah. It's underground, you know? Oh, totally. I would be disappointed if he didn't. But I Honestly, guess, you know, yeah. I guess someday what's the we're guy's vice? Out. Yeah, I don't know. We need his publicist. You should get them on here. I definitely listened to that episode. That's a great suggestion. All right. Before the Hermoses came on and, and said hello, we were talking about your advice to people and businesses who think they're too boring. They don't have a story to tell. They're using the boring excuse, as I, as I call it. Like, what do you tell people to get past that? I look for, in every business, I look for magic moments. You know, there was the Walt Disney story that I'm sure you've heard of before and I might butcher, but I thought was so brilliant. He said they were building that jungle the animal kingdom oh, yeah, at yeah. Disneyland. And he had the foremost robotics experts in the world. And at the time, these were the most lifelike animals out there. The exhibit, you know, you could basically, you felt the steam from the jungle. It was cutting edge for when it was. And, and Walt Disney went and toured the animal kingdom and got to a point where there were these animatronic birds and the birds were incredible, you know, noises, squawking, feathers moving, et cetera. And he said, the thing is, the birds don't breathe. Like their chests don't go in and out. That's not reasonable. Birds, you can see birds breathe. They need to breathe. And his robotics people are like, what is wrong with you? Like, this is this is incredible. Look what we've done. <laughs> and they go, you know, it's I can't believe you see this. And he just said, people notice perfect. Mm. And I loved that line because I don't think you have to be perfect at everything. But I think if you can have a few perfect moments in your business, those are so noticeable for us humans, we don't forget them, right? It's just like, it sticks in your mind. And so I try to think about often, what are the one to five magic moments in a business? And they don't have to be that crazy. It could be that pool card. You know, it could also be like, I think that great example, Derek Sivers, CD baby email way back in the day. Oh yeah. You know, like it's an email, but it's just, it's perfect. It's perfectly magical. And so I try to find those in each business. And I think those magic moments can erase so many of the mistakes you're going to make because those, I don't know how to get rid of. Yes. Your your point is like, you may have a boring business, doesn't matter, but there are a couple aspects of it that you can make remarkable and perfect in a way that people will see you in a completely different way and care in a way that they didn't care before. Actually, humans are pretty forgiving as consumers if we feel like we're heard and seen. And so what we don't like is like something went wrong. Now I'm on the phone with India. It's three years later. I can't cancel my subscription. That's what kills us. But if in that moment there was a really human person on the other end of the line saying something, we, w- we would feel differently. And so how in, in as many ways as possible in your business can you have those real human moments? And don't get me wrong. I mean, I run a lot of businesses and there are many of my businesses that still have no magic moments. So like it is really hard to remove yourself from the muck and get to the magic, which I fully respect for small business owners. It is hard. To do that, you really have to take yourself out of the operating mode, right? You really have to get out of the day-to-day, zoom out enough to kind of see the customer experience and to have a moment of creativity where you could actually talk to yourself and say, oh, well, what if I, you know, to your pool guy card example, what if I did the, took this thing that I do all the time and did it a little bit better and a little bit differently? 
Yeah. You know, I think about it, we'll use, we could use Sam and Sean, an example from my first million. I think Sam's really good at creating magic moments verbally. And so, you know, and so is Sean actually. So yeah, they'll say, I'm trying to think of one of their sayings, but like no small boy energy or whatever. No small boy stuff. No small boy stuff. No small boy stuff. Okay. There we go. So instead of what do most people do on podcasts? They're like, well, I get a guest. I prepare for the guest. I produce it well. I edit the video well. We upload it. I get people to share it. I think a lot about what I'm going to do in that moment. That's like podcast foundation. And I think what great business owners do is that second level, which is, okay, foundation is great, but what are like the one to 20% things that nobody else is really doing, but everybody else will remember? I have no idea what MFM's editing looks like on YouTube. You know, I don't know what their thumbnails look like, but I do remember a few lines from them. And I know that their audience really remembers because they yell it at them or, you know, they really resonate with those little moments. And so I even know in my business and and on my YouTube, I don't zoom out enough and sit back and go, okay, what are the things that I say all the time that resonate with the audience that we could create a little cult around? And that is hard to do. Yeah, because you, you, you have to repeat those things even more. You need to create swag, merch, other things to like really put the emphasis behind those things. And you're right, anybody can do them, but it takes the time and the skill. And I, I, you're completely right that Sam and Sean are, are some of the best people that I know at doing that today. What I would love to hear from you though, you were just talking about your YouTube, for example, like, How do you think about interacting with your community? You've built an amazing community of business owners and entrepreneurs who want to follow you, want to learn from you. Like, how do you get feedback from them? How do you help them know that you see who they are and you understand their problems? Here's my default. What I default to is actually value. I'm not the best marketer because Mm -hmm. I think from my perspective, I'm just like, shut up. Don't make me feel good. Just tell me how to do the thing. I want to know all the details. I want to know steps one through 12. So that's my natural inclination as a finance person. What Mm -hmm. I've realized is, you know, that old quote, whether it's Maya Angelou or somebody else that says people won't remember the things you said, but they'll remember the way you made them feel. And I have to remember that in my head because I forget that all the time. I'm like, I don't care how you made me feel. Show me the money, you know? But shut up about that other thing. (laughs) And so with the community, I've started to really kind of realize that humans, they're not going to make change unless they're operating from a place of like philosophical health and wholeness. And even if you give them the best advice ever, if they don't trust you, if they don't feel Mm -hmm. safe with their advice, they're really not going to move forward with it. And so one of the things that we do increasingly with our communities is kind of like before I record and as we're thinking about ideas, we go back to, we have an avatar that we call working John, which is basically, I think back to me. So what was I doing when I was working a nine to five? And we built out this avatar of like, okay, you're in your job. You don't love it. You feel trapped. You want to do the next thing. You know, you're capable. You're kind of scared. And I think about the moments, the actual moments, like the moment I was sitting in the office and I wanted to quit so bad, but I was too scared to do it. And I could hear my mom's voice in my head. So I just went and I cried in the bathroom. And I think about like that moment. (laughs) And then I go film the video that I think that person, that me back then would want to hear in that moment. I love that. That reminds me a lot of, do you know Nancy Duarte, one of the great presentation storytellers out there did Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. I was speaking with her one time and she's like, you know, before I go and I present to a group, when I'm backstage, I close my eyes and I think about all the people I love. 
and what they would be saying to me. And then I just imagine that they're all in the audience and I want to talk to everybody out there just like the people, like my closest family, friends, the people I love. And then she goes out on stage and delivers this amazing keynote, amazing presentation. And it's like, it's very much akin to that. And I think that like that empathy leads to like really great connection. Yeah, you know, it's really true. And it's so easy for us to forget once you've had any level of success, you know, it's sort of like, I kind of think about it like if you were laying down and you know, those plates that you put on the end of a weight bar, like the big round Mm -hmm. plates. And, you know, when you're younger, right. When you're younger, you're, you have all these plates on your chest and you're like, I can't, you know, I don't have enough cash. I don't really have a skill set. I don't know where to go next. I don't know who I am. And you have all these plates on you. And maybe it's not just age related, but like where you are in your success cycle, you're laying on the ground and you have these plates on you. And it's like just a little tough to breathe, you know, cause you're, you're caring a lot. And as you get more and more success, typically those weights come off and you're like, I can just breathe either. I can move a little bit better. And so I forget that at some point, you know, I had all those weights on my chest and just like all of them, and we can't expect them to make the jump. You know, I can't even imagine Kip, you know, being in a marketing position for as big of a company as you guys have. Like I can't, I have weights on my chest in regards to that. Like I can't make the mental leap to that. And so I try to remember that with the audience and you give them a lot of grace. Cause I think one thing that happens with a lot of creators, and I've seen this with a lot of podcasters that we both know in the business perspective, they kind of start to talk down to their audience. They do. And I'm like, no, 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 you're just, you're, you're, you know, don't, don't ever do that. Don't ever like, even when somebody says something stupid to you at an event or when you don't like a comment, you know, there's one thing between trolls and your audience, but like talking down, like, oh, you don't get it. Never mind. Like sit down, you know, bad X, Y, Z. Don't do that because that's just like you talking to that version of yourself when you had a bunch of plates on your chest. And so that is one thing I'm really careful about trying not to do. The two things I'd say to follow that. One, never talk to anybody. People connect through optimism, first of all. And second of all, if somebody's willing to spend even a minute of their time listening to you, you should be so deeply honored and flattered as a human because time is so scarce that you should have nothing but appreciation. The other thing I think about in relation to this is I live my life that like there's always an unfair advantage. Any person in any situation has an unfair advantage. And if you have all those plates on your chest like you're talking about, sometimes your unfair advantage is I don't have that much to lose. Yeah, I'm stressed. But like, I think one of the best tools in life is to say, what is the worst outcome here? What is the worst possible thing that can happen? And it is when you really take the time to think it out, it is really not as bad as you think. Like I sold a house and a car and moved to Boston to work at HubSpot when it was a fledgling startup. And I told myself at that moment, I was like, oh, the worst thing that's going to happen is this company fails and I live in my parents' basement, right? That was like, I'd anchored in on that worst case scenario. Thankfully, that didn't happen. I think my mom and dad are very happy that didn't happen. But when you anchor on that, it really resets how you view the world. And, you know, there is a value to the it, I got nothing to lose factor because <laughs> oh, yes. you know, the, the bigger you get, definitely the harder you fall. And it can also hit your ego. You know, I was thinking about it yesterday and I'm like, well, actually I was on a flight next to a guy and my husband and I were joking that I think like first class is one of the best places to network because especially with like a certain generation, not wrong. like the really, 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 really wealthy, they fly private. Right. But mm-hmm. some of the really, yeah. really, really wealthy that are older, they still apply commercial. And so like I've sat next to a few guys that are like in their seventies that are billionaires. 
which is so interesting because this generation is like, no, I got a plane, I got a membership. But that generation's like, that's wasteful. <laughs> What's wrong with you guys? You know? And so I sat on the plane next to a guy like this, actually, what was that? Yesterday. And he owns a bunch of real estate, really interesting guy. And he said something. He said, well, we have a group of friends and you can't sit at our table unless you've lost it all, been sued, possibly been indicted, and then come out on the other side. And, <laughs> and wow. I kind of laughed and I said, that's interesting. Like, tell me about who else is at that table. And he's like, well, we're all in our late 60s to early 70s to late 70s. And he's like, we've all run multiple successful businesses and we've all been married and had kids. And he goes, and it's just what it takes. And so um, when you've been around other people like that, you realize, hey, he lost it all and built it all back. Not that big deal. He got sued and he's fine now. It's not that big of a deal. Pretty much everything that we encounter is figure outable over duration and consistency. I love that. Very few things in life are irrevocable. You can turn it around. Okay, we're getting close to the end of our time together, but I, a couple of quick things that I want to make sure we cover. The, the next thing I want to talk about is you have your hands in so many businesses. You talk to so many entrepreneurs. What are the common pitfalls that you see businesses making, especially in the world of marketing? Because we got a ton of entrepreneurs, ton of marketers watching the show. What are like the common mistakes that you're like, oh gosh, I wish people would just stop doing these handful of things? One thing that I really am on my high horse about lately is that I really don't love promissory things in marketing. I don't love from a creator standpoint and especially the business standpoint when people make it seem too easy or too flippant or talk about mm. passive income or talk, like I don't really like any of that. I think most things that are worth it take some hard work. So that's one side. So let's be real about it. And I think humans can feel real. You can feel it in your gut when you hear it. And then on the yeah, flip side of that... I don't like lazy. I like some risk. And it's actually, it's quite hard. And we could use Sam and Sean as an example. It's hard to be okay with a little cringe, like to be okay saying something like no small boy mm -hmm. energy. Like people could, you know, it feels like maybe not that intelligent or not that sophisticated. And so people don't want to do the like slightly cringe thing of putting a half naked person on your pool card, right? Like it, it's some like somehow some reputational or ego risk to good marketing. And I'm sure there's like some vernacular you guys have about that. But I feel like most people go lazy and they go simple and they go copycat. And I actually say the opposite to my team. One of our core culture codes at Contrarian Thinking is better to be wrong than to be boring. And, and I think that's really important because you can take risk and you can fail, but don't fail short like fail with a little bit of oomph to it. And that I think is a problem with most marketing. Like I review every video that goes out for us still, I would say, let's say 90% to be mm -hmm. safe. And I get, everybody knows, like if I put on there, I can't remember what's the word for images that are like boilerplate. There's like a word for that. Oh, like stock photography. There you go. Stock photography. I cannot stand stock photography. I think it's like it's an absolute disaster for marketing. And so like you could go to Unsplash and use some of their quote unquote stock photography. But like if you have like a perfectly diverse mixture of humans in suits standing around a table pointing at a whiteboard on there, <laughs> I'm going to murder somebody, you know? And so, so my team knows if I put like stock photography strike one, you get three strikes and then you're out of the editing team because it's just lazy. Take the 30 seconds more to buy the right image or to shoot the right image yourself and take some risk. 
Well, I love the principle of rather be wrong than boring. You know, I was talking with somebody on my team earlier today and he was like, you know, I, we might get our hands slapped for this and whatever. And I was like, it's like, you got to, it takes a lot of slaps on a hand for it to bleed. You know, like you got to test That's the boundaries good. of where things are because if you don't know the far bounds, like you're back to your no small boy stuff and the cringe stuff with Sam and Sean. Like if you don't know what is cringe, then you don't know the thing right before it that's actually going to resonate with everybody. Like if you just stay in the bottom and just like you're anchored by fear instead of like seeing the far side of it, you're going to fail because somebody else is going to come along with the courage to really go all the way. And I think that's kind of, to me, what I'm hearing you pushing your team on is like, I don't want somebody to come in and be willing to go bigger or further than we are. I'm pretty candid with our team that we're not uh, solving world hunger. Uh, We are not um, curing cancer. Last I checked, we are trying to help more humans believe in themselves in order to do something in business that could lead to financial freedom for them. That's what we're trying. We're trying to do that. But there is a long way between that and the scientific equation that has to be followed exactly. And we're just not in that business. And so I think you're exactly right. Now, it was hard for me to get there at first. And I still feel it sometimes. Like I'll go on Twitter and yeah, somebody will say something on Twitter that I don't like or about our content or they'll write the word cringe on it. And I still feel it. I'm still like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, shoot. I, 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 that makes me feel a certain does, way. Does that bother you? Does it, does it bother you if people think it's cringe? Um. I think I still, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty thoughtful to all of the comments we get and I'm thoughtful to them in a way like, is that right? Like, what about this leads to that? Mm -hmm. It's all question. And then the only time it actually bothers me is when I feel like we got something wrong or they're right. Mm -hmm. If there's like a little tinge of right or we're wrong, then it will really bother me. And otherwise I kind of go, ah, it's just the price to play the game. But I do think that that was really hard for me in the beginning because in finance, your whole thing is ego, reputation, projection of strength and certainty. And so coming out of that world and into online was really actually pretty scary. And all my partners in private equity thought I was, you know, an idiot and would say things like, oh yeah, you'll be the next Grant Cardone with your 10X plane. And I'm like, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> no, I'm not going to be. And I would have to like work through the fact that they felt that way. And what does that mean to me? And so I get why it's scary for people. I'm kind of a, I'm a kind of a fraidy cat, but I do it anyways type of person. We're going to close out in a second, but haven't you found that that kind of disbelief is like an inversely positive signal that if people are, are kind of giving you a hard time about this path that you're going out on, it almost always means you're going down the right path. Because you have some conviction and if the majority of people don't think that's a smart thing to do, you inherently have less competition. And so you've got a pretty good chance to succeed, right? Like, do you find it when you're feeling that criticism that it makes you want to go further? Oh, yeah. Again, the worst thing that you can be is uninteresting and boring in this world. Uh, You need attention in every business. Exactly. That's like, right. That's what they say. Like the worst thing is not hate or love, but apathy. It's not booze or claps. It's indifference. And so, yes, you want to push for feeling, whatever that feeling is. And I think the really clever marketers of all shapes and sizes can get comfortable with booze and claps and find something interesting from both of them. And I mean, you see this when you listen to comedians, right? Like Mm -hmm. they'll say a joke that's actually really quite funny, but the whole audience will feel some way about it. So they'll go, oh, or or boo, but (laughs) they made them feel the worst would be a silent room. 
Oh, yeah. I've been in a stand-up room where like people are just, you could hear a pin drop and that like that is the most painful feeling you will ever feel for another human being. It's somebody that is just like, oh, I am so bad at this that nobody's even making a sound. It's so painful. All right. I know we are at time. You have been so gracious. Thank you. Thank you, Cody, for taking the time with us today. I'll let you get back to Spotify, the Hermoses, everything that you got going on. But seriously, thank you so much for joining Marketing Against the Grain today. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. Appreciate you. It was awesome. 